Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 161, Dr. Paul Moser on Conforming Philosophy to Christianity. Dr. Paul Moser is professor of philosophy at Loyola University in Chicago. A past editor of the American Philosophical Quarterly, he's the author of over 100 articles on theory of knowledge, metaphysics, ethics, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, philosophy of religion, and analytic theology. A few of his over 20 edited or authored books are The Severity of God, Religion and Philosophy Reconceived, The Elusive God, Reorienting Religious Epistemology, The Evidence for God, Religious Knowledge Reexamined, Philosophy After Objectivity, and Knowledge and Evidence. But he's here with us today to talk about his contributions to the new book, Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy where he defends a model on which philosophy should be conformed with Christianity. Dr. Moser, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you, Dale. Dr. Moser, can you tell us something about your own spiritual journey and specifically about your own experience of God's agape love, which you've discussed in this book and in several other places? Yes, it's for me the foundation not only of my life, but also of my attempt to understand what the good news is of God in Christ. And here I'm deeply indebted to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.5. This passage speaks of why hope and faith as well in God do not disappoint us. And Paul says, because God's agape has been poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit of God, Paul has in mind a kind of cognitive uh, basis here, a kind of cognitive lack of disappointment. And that basis is an actual presentation by God of divine love to an individual, perhaps in conscience, but in any case, in what Paul calls our heart. I take that in Paul to include conscience. And for me, that is a distinctive, unique experience of God's nature and reality. And I think uh, God gives that to all people willing to receive it at the appropriate time when God deems fit to uh, present that to them. So for me, that has been a recurring experience over many years, starting at about 15 years of age until my current old age. And I regard it as the living foundation for faith in God, faith being response to that personal reality. And that evidence, uh, although personal, is not unshareable. It can be shared by others. It can manifest itself in one's character, in one's behavior, and thereby become what I call personifying evidence of God's reality for others. So I'm trying to bring this front and center as a robust form of evidence and experience of God's self-manifestation in a way that uh, enlivens the Christian message and saves it from being uh, just another theory or just another claim being made so that its power can be realized, its power to make people new, give them purpose, 
and uh, lead them into flourishing community with others. So there's huge practical value in this experience that I claim is available to all people at the proper time by God's lights. Are you referring then to sort of a, a more or less constant sort of aspect of your experience or to certain special experiences that happened maybe when you were converted or at certain times? I wouldn't call it constant because a huge part of my story, in keeping with the Old and New Testament, is that God bobs and weaves, God hides at times, God is not giving a constant self-presentation, but does it in a way that a caring person would when it is most fitting, when it suits God's purposes and benefits humans. So it's important for me to point to the role of conscience And in conscience, I think what happens often is God seeks to convict us of falling short of divine agape and to nudge us without coercion toward a deepening commitment to it. So I think what we find in conscience, if we attend to it, is at times God's seeking to get our attention and to yield to being convicted toward agape in such a way that there's an actual deepening, an actual increasing of our cooperation or sharing in divine agape. And we see that, I think, often in uh, how we relate to our enemies. I think we are challenged to uh, show agape even to those who have harmed us, those who are unjust toward us. And that becomes a real struggle with conscience, whether we are going to yield or whether we're going to steel ourselves against cooperating with enemy love. The expectation of enemy love is one of the most distinctive and profound in the New Testament, and we see it in Matthew 5 and Luke 6 on the lips of Jesus himself. And I think we see it in the experience of conscience if we attend to uh, the divine challenge there. But we have the free will to say no to that challenge and to go our own way. And as a result, we get challenges in the New Testament to walk with the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. These are appeals to our will, to our free will, to yield to the conviction on offer, to being convicted by God, to conform to God's perfect character. I take it that's what genuine knowledge of God is not some abstract theoretical knowledge, but knowing God in an I-thou, person-to-person relationship where we yield to God's perfect character in a filial manner. So it's like parent, like child. We take on God's character, share in God's nature, and thereby can have koinonia or fellowship with God. I take it that's what it's all about, and then bringing people into that same koinonia. I take it that's what God's spirit is all about, and what we see in a lot of Christianity is a woeful neglect of God's spirit or a trivializing of God's spirit into something trivially sensational or entertaining instead of profound character transformation toward what I would call the perfect character of God in Christ, as exemplified in Gethsemane, where Jesus did yield his will to his Father in the face of excruciating death. I think we're called to do the same under our own circumstances. 
Dr. Moser, one thing I appreciate about your own work is that you pay a lot of serious attention to the New Testament. And I wanted to ask you about present-day Christian philosophers and your experience. I mean, think about members of the Society of Christian Philosophers or the Evangelical Philosophical Society. In your view, generally speaking, do these pay as much attention to the New Testament as they do, say, to Kant or Descartes or Quine or Aristotle? Well, I think their heroes are actually different from the ones you've suggested. I think they often latch on to um, Augustine and then some of the natural theologians and sometimes some of the uh, so-called reformed epistemologists. I happen to think that those camps all miss the profound epistemology of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, in Romans 5, Romans 8. All of my heroes who attend to some of those themes are dead. They are people who lived around uh, the early 1900s. They touched on some of these themes, but those writers and their influence are largely neglected now. So I'm trying to look back to the Apostle Paul, identify his insights in Christian epistemology, and bring them into the center where the actual focus of Jesus is properly represented. And I deny that it's captured by natural theology or reformed epistemology or anything that's trendy in circles of so-called Christian philosophy. So you're referring to people from ages past that have inspired you in your focus on Paul and on this aspect of Christian experience. Can you give us a couple names? Are you thinking theologians or biblical scholars? The way it worked is um, I ran into these themes in Paul and then asked, well, has anybody come anywhere near them? And so I started looking and uh, I found in some fairly obscure figures touching on these themes, not so much Romans 5.5 that's been largely neglected in almost all circles. It's here and there somebody mentions it, but nobody does anything with it in terms of actual evidence. And I've tried to pick that up. The theme that I found some people touching on is the importance of the role of the will, the conforming of the will to God's call. Mm-hmm. And that's been identified in some very obscure figures. One of them I like a lot is David W. Forrest, who taught at Glasgow in the early 1900s. And he's got a couple of books. One is The Authority of Christ. One is The Christ of History and of Faith. He's very good on the theme of the role of the will. And there he's picking up a theme that I think you can give Pascal some credit for, although Pascal was a strange kind of Jansenist who I think neglected the importance of free will in important ways. But at least Pascal thought he was picking up the importance of the theme of the human will, even if he uh, couldn't stand the Molinism of the Jesuits and sided with a Jansenist reading of Augustine against Calvin, but still a kind of neglect of the uh, real importance of free will. So I give Pascal qualified credit in that regard. Dr. Moser, you define philosophy as a practice, as the love and pursuit of wisdom. And you also point out that the New Testament asserts Jesus to be endowed with a distinctive divine wisdom, a kind which is contrary to the wisdom of the world. In your view, does this mean that any follower of Jesus must, to some extent, practice philosophy? Only in that sense in which Jesus offered wisdom and Paul offered wisdom. 
I would want to avoid confusing that with what goes under the name now in professional philosophy, because it's a rather sterile practice in academic philosophy where there seems to be a clamoring for satisfying professional standards that distort what uh, Jesus and Paul were about especially in regard to the focus on the self-presentation of divine agape to individuals by God. There seems to be a quest to appear as intellectual as one's philosophical heroes, and that usually means putting an undue focus on arguments as if they were neutral tools and if they somehow served an essential purpose in the story of self-manifestation in the New Testament in Romans and elsewhere. You don't get an emphasis on arguments of that sort. Instead, you get an emphasis on the Spirit of God self-manifesting to a cooperative individual. But of course, you can't boast in that. You can't show off with that. You can't use it as a sledgehammer to uh, slam your enemies. It becomes something much more profound. And I think in the academic world, we're trained to fight with certain tools, tools of arguments that allow us to uh, be uh, belligerent toward others and puff ourselves up with our favorite arguments. All that's taken away in the kind of uh, Christian epistemology that Paul promotes and that I'm now trying to promote. So it might be hard to get tenure <laughs> at a university by pushing this line. Even Christian schools seem to fall prey to this, uh, what I would call uh, idolatry of arguments or false rhetoric of arguments. It really isn't about that at the bottom. It's about a distinctive kind of interpersonal evidence offered as a gift, an unearned gift by God's spirit to a cooperative person. That kind of takes the wind out of our sails of boasting and puffing ourselves up and climbing above others and over others. It uh, is actually deflating and humbling. And so Paul can say that um, love builds up, whereas uh, knowledge of a certain kind puffs up. Paul saw that and said as much and said also that um, this is in 1 Corinthians 1, that in God's wisdom, the world didn't know God through its wisdom that there's a special kind that's needed, and that's given as a gift through the self-manifestation of God's Spirit. Paul said as much, and he's almost completely ignored in his epistemology. For certain social reasons of, I don't know, peer pressure and seeking to impress certain people, it's a big mistake. What you're saying about the spiritual hazards of being a professional philosopher reminds me of this passage, which is in James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. 
Dr. Moser, a couple of times you've mentioned what you think is a misplaced emphasis on arguments in contemporary analytic philosophy. I wonder, can't you do argument-oriented analytic work and yet not have selfish ambition and be a peacemaker and with the proper gentleness and so on? Of course you could. Remember, arguments are only as good as their foundation, and they're all going to rest on premises. And the question is, what are those premises based in? The arguments aren't doing the ultimate work. The arguments are a delivery truck. And a delivery truck is only as valuable as the goods being kept on the truck. So the question is, what are the ultimate goods? And if they're just claims, abstract philosophical claims in the premises, or some kind of uh, mere empirical claims about the world, first cause or design, they aren't going to do any profound transformative work no profound ethical or redemptive work. They're going to be relatively shallow compared to the self-manifestation of the divine agape by God's spirit. So the problem isn't with arguments in themselves. It's giving them a certain role that doesn't include this vital experiential foundation of divine self-manifestation. If you leave that out, you're leaving out the power of God's character. And remember the gospel, the good news offered by God, is a message of power. It's not just a propositional statement. So we need somehow to bring in this uh, unique power from God if we're going to capture what is in fact the good news of God in Christ. So the problem is what you do with these arguments. And traditionally, they have been devoid of the kind of foundation you see in Romans 5.5. So the critique of contemporary philosophy is not just that they give arguments or they give them in a bad spirit or something like that. It's that the Christian philosophers, you think, are leaving out some of the content of the gospel because it's not something that's shared in common with other interlocutors? I think that's part of it, but I also think they're bad arguments. When you leave that out and then try to get to God by natural theology, you have bad arguments. They don't take you there. You don't have adequate resources to get there. And so you get something lesser than the God worthy of worship. You get a thin alternative that leaves you in need of more and leaves your opponents, your critics, unconvinced. They look at the arguments and say, well, I don't see that leading to anything like a God worthy of worship. Even if you get some first cause or even if you get some designer, it's not the um, God worthy of worship who's uh, exemplified in Christ. It's something much less than that. And... uh, You're not going to get there from here. You're not going to be able to start with that lesser God and get by natural theology or any fancy argument to uh, the God worthy of worship, the God who's morally perfect and who stoops to self-manifestation in divine agape. So my challenge has been to the cheerleaders for natural theology, show me how you get there. And uh, with no surprise, I've gotten no answer. So there's something of an ideology of natural theology. It's something like a protected club of here's how we go and this is what we're going to rally around. But it ends up preaching to the choir. Nobody outside is convinced and it becomes insular and self-protecting and based on unconvincing arguments if you're talking about a morally perfect God worthy of worship. It's not required by a first cause. It's not required by a designer or a fine tuner or um, any such uh, natural theological argument. They fall short.
This brings me to my next question. I noticed that in one interaction in the book, you observed that traditional arguments for the existence of God, cosmological argument, design argument, you hold do not in fact support belief in the exact sort of God Christians believe in. They don't even prove the existence of a perfect being. Mm -hmm. But as you note, such arguments might at least disprove naturalism, which is kind of the big bully on the block as far as worldviews are concerned these days. But at one point in the book, you say that any beings that are supposedly proven by these arguments are only impediments or diversions when it comes mm -hmm. to knowing the true God. Mm -hmm. I wonder why you think that. You might think it's just a, a stepping stone, or at least you're breaking down the barrier of this naturalistic worldview, and then the person might be susceptible to other considerations. Well, I'm open to seeing that. I would love to see them as a refutation of naturalism, but I don't see it. I, I don't see how they even get you to a personal God, because I think they play fast and loose often with the probabilities. They ascribe probabilities that I would call inscrutable instead of favorable to um, mere theism. A standard move is to say, well, we'll get to mere theism, and then later we'll get to Christian theism. I don't even see how you get to mere theism because these probabilities are highly controversial. And many people, many very sophisticated philosophers who know probability theory better than the apologists aren't buying it. They'll say the probabilities here are inscrutable. And I can name names on that if people want to read uh, somebody proficient in probability theory. So there's a self-serving effort by so many apologists to appeal to probabilities, assume we can assign them, ascribe the values, and then get to mere theism. I'm claiming not so fast. There's huge controversy about how to ascribe these probabilities. And it just gets into a mess. It gets into a stalemate where this person says this about them, that person says that. And you're left with just more indeterminate puzzlement. You're left wondering, I don't know what to infer at this point. Things are messy. And I'm saying we need a cleaner approach. We need one that doesn't get us distracted and diverted. And even if we're charitable and say, all right, I'll give you some minimal source of these evidences of design or indications of a first cause. But now, how are we going to get from that being, whatever it is, to a morally perfect God? I don't see the stepping stone. I don't see how this is going to get us any closer. In fact, most people outside of the Christian circle who are willing to be charitable on that front never take the next step. They stop there. That's because there's nothing to make the next step. So I'd rather not just have a kind of uh, stopping stone. I'd rather find salient evidence that actually fits the character of a God worthy of worship. Otherwise, we aren't going to get there. And I claim that um, that's where standard apologetics leaves us with the kind of vapid mere theism never to get to the real thing, if we can even get to mere theism. And I doubt even that, since I'm not convinced you need a personal being to get a first cause or design or even tuning. I think tuning can come about in coincidental ways. But the probabilities are highly controversial, and all we get into there is more controversy. And if you look at the literature, that's where we're left. So if you had a good friend who was a naturalist, but told you, I acknowledge I might be making a horrible mistake here, 
how should I proceed? You wouldn't send them to study natural theology. How would you advise them, just generally speaking, to seek experience of God? Or I would urge them to figure out what kind of evidence would be appropriate to a God-worthy of worship, given God's character, and then ask, what would it take to identify, see, and appropriate that evidence? And that becomes a hugely existential, person-engaged challenge, very much different from solving an intellectual puzzle. That has to do all of a sudden with my life, with who I am, my intentions, what I'm willing to be convicted of, whom I'm willing to have a relationship with that may call me to Gethsemane, may call me to uh, hold things that don't fit my peer group, all of a sudden, everything's at stake, and that's what you would expect of a God worthy of worship. So the key is looking at the evidence that would fit such a um, distinctive, even unique God who demands all of us everything we have, not just our casual speculations. And this is um, confirmed throughout the New Testament, even in John's Gospel, where the light on offer is the life of the Logos or Christ himself. It's not just a set of propositions. This is a life presented to us for our participation, our sharing in that life with all that we are and have. Very different from a mere intellectual problem. Very different from you, what you get in standard apologetics or natural theology, which is seen to be relatively trivial and sterile, and in the end, really beside the point. So does that mean that you would advise uh, like a seeking naturalist or an agnostic to study the Gospels and the, the, the person and teachings of Jesus? Well, that would be a wonderful start, but I would ask first uh, what they really want. Who's asking? Why are you asking? Are you playing games here? Are you serious? I mean, there's a lot of appearance of sincerity that ends up being just that. And you see that as you deal with a lot of naturalists. They like to wring their hands over, well, I'm really trying to be sincere and look at the evidence. But they need to come clean on whether they're really willing to um, give up uh, certain pretensions and certain priorities for those that you see in God in Christ. That's a struggle for all of us, and we ought to own that. This is not a casual intellectual reflection. This may require a complete makeover, not only in my private life, but in my relations to others and in what I think of my peer group, especially the know-it-alls in philosophy. I may not fit with them anymore. And am I willing to give that up? Am I willing to give up that approval? Maybe not. Maybe I value that more than anything. Well, in that case, we're in trouble. We're in the trouble of John's gospel. They preferred the glory of men more than the glory of God, and that's why they can't believe. That's said in John's gospel. And that's a real human challenge for all of us, naturalists, non-naturalists. Uh, we need to own that. I think you need to start some kind of uh, annual retreat for uh, self-examination for non-believers well, or something yeah, I mean, like that, a specific of God program. That every day. We have to be willing, though. We need to be open to cooperating. And that's painful stuff. We end up having to give up a lot that this world offers. And peer approval is part of it. And we'd learn that in any university setting. This stuff does not fit 
in a, an academic setting as typically uh, presented to us. But we should own that up front instead of trying to please the academic powers that be, which seems to be the game of many Christian apologists that kind of, I want to be smarter than thou by the academic standards. It's a huge mistake and a dangerous mistake. Dr. Moser, speaking of college, when a Christian college student tells people in his church that he's majoring in philosophy, those people are often alarmed as they remember some New Testament passages where Paul says some negative things about worldly or merely human wisdom. In your view, should they be alarmed? And also, what advice would you give a young Christian embarking on the academic study of philosophy? Mm. Well, are they listening? I mean, I don't know where they're coming from. It's always a matter of discerning. Where's this person coming from? But clearly, there's a distinctive approach to wisdom and philosophy in the New Testament. And if we're Christians, we should attend to that. We should know what it is. We should assess it for what it is. And we should evaluate alternatives from university life by that standard of God in Christ that's found in the Apostle Paul and in John's Gospel. We should attend to what is reflective of God in Christ, lest we wander off into our own distorted wisdom and philosophy. And that's what Paul was criticizing at Colossae and Corinth. He wasn't dismissing wisdom. Among the mature, we do speak a wisdom, but a wisdom from God, Paul says. And we should attend to what that wisdom is, and we should uh, guide others in attending to it less confusion come into a life. And philosophy has uh, done that for many people. I could give you a list of a number of students in graduate school come to study philosophy and then uh, give up their Christian faith because they think they've discovered something in philosophy that's more profound. My experience with these students is they're typically ignorant of what's being taught in the New Testament about wisdom and philosophy. They are led astray by peer pressure, by a desire to fit into the professional community of philosophers and appear smart by their standards. It's dangerous, but it's a powerful draw for many students going into philosophy. Christian philosophers should name that and they should help students avoid this disaster of giving up genuine wisdom, the kind that they truly need. When you're a student like that, I think you're naturally sort of impressed with professional philosophers. They have some unusual abilities, and mm-hmm. it's really easy to take one on as your master, sort of put him in the place of Christ, don't you think? It's very seductive, extremely. And it's a constant threat for everybody in the discipline, even Christians who have identified the kind of wisdom that Jesus named and that Paul emphasized. It's a constant threat. 
But that's true of life in general. I mean, the powers of darkness mm-hmm. are alluring wherever you go. But they have this kind of distinctive power in the so-called life of the mind because one can easily be taken in by uh, various intellectual moves and strategies that seem so shiny and attractive and clever and sharp. But they all leave out that defining feature of the divine agape, self-manifested through the Spirit of God, uh, that does give life, and it does give evidence, and the kind of filial knowledge that Jesus and Paul were after. I was blessed in this respect. When I was an undergraduate, I had, I can think of three in particular, Christian philosophy professors who, in a sense, I could see Christ in them. Like, mm-hmm. they were in it to serve and uh, not for their own fame or whatever. Mm-hmm. I could see that. But if I hadn't had that, it would have been harder. I would have had to ask, well, how do you use those abilities to follow Christ? It'd be harder to figure out without actually seeing a case of it. Indeed, and that's why I stress this idea of personifying evidence. Evidence must become us. We must become it. And so our lives reflect it. Not just our talk, not even just our thoughts, but who we are. And I think that's why the fruit of the Spirit is so important. It's palpable, it's life-oriented, and as John says, the light was the life, so that what God does is inherently personal is presents a living person. And we are to become those living persons who reflect God's character. So it's not about our arguments. It's not about our fancy inferences. It's about who we are in our moral character relating to others. That's what agape is. It's inherently interpersonal uh, reflecting of a personal God. We so often leave that out for the sake of these rickety arguments that ultimately seem to convince only the choir members when we could be known by our love, by our agape, as Jesus says in John's gospel. I mean, these themes are in the New Testament, so one doesn't have to make them up. One simply has to attend to what Jesus, Paul, John, and others have already pointed us to in profound ways, even if those ways don't fit the academy. Dr. Moser, I wanted to focus on an interesting exchange you had, and this is specifically with your interlocutor, Dr. Timothy McGrew, in the book that we're talking about. And you say, it is unclear at any rate why McGrew thinks that the case for Christian theism depends on arguments of natural theology. You continue, the writers of the New Testament did not hold this view, and therefore the New Testament itself is free of arguments of natural theology. Mm-hmm. You then go on to discuss this famous passage from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, but did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Dr. Moser, to many readers, this suggests a design argument or perhaps a cosmological argument for theism. Help us to understand why you don't read it that way. I don't because Paul didn't read it that way and didn't intend it that way. It's uh, about as clear as could be. Paul never uses an inferential term like therefore or so or consequently. He's not drawing an inference at all. On the contrary, he says God showed it to them. He doesn't say God gave an argument. He doesn't say God drew a dubious inference to a first cause or to a designer or to a fine tuner. He says God self-manifested through nature. And God does that, but that's not an argument. It's a presentation of God's character somehow through nature. Just as when I use my smartphone to call you, I'm not giving an argument. I'm presenting myself through the resources of my smartphone so you can hear my voice and maybe even see my image. But there's no hint of an argument, let alone a dubious argument of natural theology. That is completely foreign to what Paul is saying. And if people would slow down and read the passage, they would see that unless they're in the grips of a bad theory. So it just isn't there. It's not there in the Greek either. So if you can't read the Greek, take some time and either see what others have said about the Greek or learn Greek. It's not there in the English. It's not there in Paul's Greek either. There's no argument. He's identifying just that God self-manifests through nature in the way that I can self-manifest through my smartphone. But that's not an argument. And it certainly isn't a first cause design or fine-tuning argument. People are just making things up here to satisfy their antecedent bad natural theology. Anyone can confirm that. The data are there in Romans 1. So I would just say, go look. Cleanse your mind of all the prejudice that you've been hearing from natural theology and read it. There's no inference of anything like that there. So there's something evidential going on because he's critiquing the Gentiles and saying that they sort of have enough information that they can be held responsible. Specifically but not in the actual source. The source is God showed it to them. God showed it to them, not by an argument, but by manifesting through creation. That's not an argument. A self-manifestation of God is not an argument. An argument consists of premises and an inference to a conclusion. Paul doesn't give one. 
So their evidence about God, would it be something like just having the intuition, if I could put it that way, that God made the world or something like that? Or no, that this no, is God's it's, handiwork it's God's, or God's spirit self-manifests in human experience in conjunction with one's experience in creation. But that's not an argument. It's sure, God self-manifesting yeah. in the same way God self-manifests in conscience mm-hmm. in human experience. But again, that's not an argument. An argument consists of premises that, by means of an inference, yield a conclusion. There's nothing like that suggested by Paul. Nothing. And it would have to have premises that would be granted by somebody who didn't already believe in God. If it's natural theology, those premises have to be natural. They can't be supernatural. Otherwise, it's not natural theology. And then you try to get from natural premises to a God worthy of worship. If you do, you merit the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and nobody's picked up the prize for that. And for very good reason. You can't get there from here. And that's why the New Testament writers don't even try. They weren't stupid. If they had such an argument, they would have used it. They don't have it. This is a later concoction that there's such an argument and that you can get there from here. Much later. And for some unknown reason, Christian apologists have rallied around that bad strategy, and it's only hurt their cause. But it's a club. It's a kind of uh, apologetics industrial complex. There's money made. There's all kinds of uh, fanfare and it is a club. boasting yeah. and, and debates, and it becomes an industry. And it's a sad day when the gospel was handled in that way. Dr. Moser, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. The book again is called Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. It's edited by Paul Gould and Richard Davis. This week's thinking music has been Lily So Far Away by Fireproof Babies. We got a new review recently in the iTunes store in the U.S. It's by a user named... Amelia King 4. This user gives us five stars. They say, This podcast not only addresses one of the most important but often neglected points of doctrine of the church, i.e., who is God, but also does it in a profoundly deep and thorough manner. Dr. Tuggy has the best Christian minds there are on his show, and he is incredibly careful to give them both respect and time to explain their views while also analyzing the internal consistency of their views. He's also recommended so many books by both Trinitarians and Unitarians, which have been helpful to me. This is a wonderful podcast about a subject all Christians should wrestle with as they seek to make their own views align with the Bible. Dr. Tuggy has helped me and is continuing to help me on that journey. Thanks for that review. Much appreciated. If you'd like to leave a review for the Trinity's podcast in the iTunes store for your country, There's a link for that on the blog post for any episode. Just look for the red button that says leave a review. Doing this will help other people find the podcast. Next week, another one of the interesting thinkers dialoguing in this book, Dr. Timothy McGrew, who has a somewhat different perspective about traditions of natural theology. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.